0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Fast talk, street talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might, providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk Hard talk.
0: The independent
1: republic of Mike Graham nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We can start with some breaking news. As left, apparently, have called some more strikes. Brilliant. Uh, Just when we were about to discuss the teacher strike, the nurse's strike, which gets underway tomorrow, uh, I think, or maybe even today. Um, Train drivers are to strike on February the 1st and the 3rd after their union rejected a pay offer. Uh, These are the same people who say, we just want to sit round the table. We just want to sit down with the government. We just want to talk to them. Well, they have talked to them uh, and they haven't got a deal. They've rejected it. Very good. Uh, So there won't be any more trains again at some point. Like there aren't any anyway. Does anybody actually bother using the trains anymore? Uh, I've got people who come to work on the train and they tell me that the trains they do use are hopeless, overcrowded, very badly run, and usually late. Apart from that, it's brilliant service. We'll be talking, of course, about some of the most remarkable stories I think I've ever seen uh, on the front pages of newspapers, including, of course, uh, the Metropolitan Police Rapist. Yes, another one. Uh, This time, he's been doing it for 20 years. They had nine opportunities to stop him uh, from being called Bastard Dave. That was his nickname, In the Police. I'm not going to labour the point, but when somebody has that sort of nickname, you might wonder whether or not there's something wrong. You might remember the case of Wayne Cousins, His nickname in the police for laughs was the rapist. What is going on in the Metropolitan Police? What is going on in the corridors of power? How is it possible that the police seem to find more predators than actually decent people to work in their organization? They're now investigating somewhere between 800 and 1,000 other people who might also be sexual predators, sexual deviants, sexual criminals, people who will assault women, possibly even men, I don't know, but surely to heavens we need a police service, whatever you want to call it, a police force that actually represents law and order, that's not full of people who commit crimes, that's not chock full of people who are in fact holding criminal records, it's an absolute scandal, we're going to talk about it uh, with Nusrit Mitab, and we're also going to talk about it with you. Uh, because it's no wonder the police can't do their jobs, the ones they're supposed to do, because they're too busy actually covering up for people who are known as Bastard Dave. Unbelievable. We'll get to more of that coming up very shortly. We're also gonna talk, of course, about the school strike. Mel Stride is gonna join us. Uh, He's the uh, Minister of State for the Department of Health, uh, uh, Department of Work and Pensions, rather. He's going to be talking to us about how the government has somehow managed to get more people into work uh, in the last few months. He's going to say that's because he's got them off the indolence vouchers and he's somehow managed to find people to go to work. We'll also be talking, of course, um, not just about uh, the David Carrick situation, uh, but also we'll be talking to Laura Dodsworth about what's going on in Scotland Uh, She's here to talk about the Gender Recognition Act, of course, because yesterday there was much crying and weeping uh, in the streets of Edinburgh when uh, Nicola Sturgeon finally was told, I'm afraid Rishi Sunak is going to kibosh your gender recognition bill because it's not constitutionally correct. Also, of course, we will be talking about Sadiq Khan. Uh, He's in the mire as well this morning because he's being accused by his fellow assembly members, obviously some of them on the opposite side of the aisle to him, uh, that he's been misleading the public, that he has been manipulating the results of a poll that was done uh, on the ULEZ expansion plan. We talk about it an awful lot on this show. We talked about it an awful lot yesterday. Uh, basically, the idea is, is that anybody with an old car should be paying extra to drive it in London. can't uh, denies uh, that he has been manipulating anything, uh, but he would say that, wouldn't he? We'll be getting to that. We have asked him, of course, to come on, the Mayor of London, Um, but I think that's about the 95th time we've asked him to come on uh, and I'm not holding my breath just in case he doesn't turn up 03444991000 of course we want to hear from you because it's your voices that make this show we want to know what you think, we want to know what you're seeing what you're hearing so we can tell everybody else and by the way, have you seen the floods? have you seen them? there's an eel swimming around in a shopping centre in Hastings an eel, I don't know where it came from but it's swimming and tell me, you shouldn't really be seeing things swimming inside a shopping centre, should you? Also, we're we'll bringing the laces on the overturned uh, double-decker bus down in Bridgewater in Somerset as well. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Grave. It's all happening right here, right now. Don't go anywhere. This is Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's quite a nice day. There's a bit of a cold snap going on. Got in the car last night on my way back from the talk. Uh, It was minus two. Uh, This morning it was also a little bit frosty. There's some snow around and about. But the worst problem, it seems to me, certainly in parts of southern England, uh, are the floods. Uh, we have got, as I say, an accident that's happened in Bridgewater where a double decker bus has overturned and slipped on some ice. And there are some casualties. So we will bring you uh, news on that as soon as we can, as soon as there's any, uh, anything coming out. But let's say a very good morning. First up to our first guest this morning, uh, writer and commentator Candice Holdsworth, um, who is here to talk about a great many things. Candice, very good morning to you morning i mean yesterday morning we broke this story um about this metropolitan police officer david carrick and i have to say even i was quite shocked because normally in the news business you're aware of court cases you're aware of things going on investigations etc we had no clue that this was a story until he popped up at southwark crown court yesterday to plead guilty to all these offences and it seems extraordinary to me that after Wayne Cousins and after everything that was done, all the hand wringing, uh, all of the kind of, you know, mea culpas from the Metropolitan Police. that here's another one who it might turn out, albeit he didn't murder anyone, could be a worse sexual predator than Wayne Cousins ever was.
3: Yes. I mean, it is such a sinister story. I think the Met Police must now be panicking about their credibility mm. now that a second um second police officer, is being accused of all these crimes, and it turns out that he has a long track record, loads of complaints against him. And that was the same with Wayne Cousins. People had complained about him. But I think what you said in your intro was really good because these guys weren't even known by their colleagues Mm. to be dodgy characters. And no-one said anything. No-one raised anything. I mean, to have your nickname be The Bastard or The Rapist and to think that that's okay—it it is not okay.
1: It really isn't. And, I mean... The culture, clearly, inside of the police is very, very confusing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we hear that a lot of the the leaders in the police uh, organisations up and down the country are too woke. You know, they won't give out the right information, the right kind of direction to some of their officers when they're dealing with the likes of Just Stop Oil or or Extinction Rebellion. They're making cups of tea for people who glued themselves to the M25. And yet, in the darker kind of recesses of the police stations in which they work, They've got these kind of cults of, of incredible misogyny, incredible sort of, um, you know, l- lack of respect, if you like, for women um, and straight down criminal behaviour.
3: Yes, their priorities are all wrong. I think a lot of people were shocked at what happened at the Sarah Everard vigil when the police just used the most heavy-handed methods to shut the protest down, trampled all over the flowers that people had left Yeah, um, and... What's also quite scary is that um, it's only now that they're going to be investigating, they say, 1,600 instances mm. of people, of police officers who've had complaints like domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing is, as well, is the police is going to attract people like that, people who like having power over others. So you've got to have very, very strict vetting and safeguarding measures.
1: Yes, I was talking to somebody about this last night and they were saying, you know, it is unfortunate, but it's true that organisations like the police, like local councils, like uh, schools, like uh, charities perhaps, and particularly those that operate in foreign countries, they do tend to attract people who want to hide in plain sight. So even even more reason, therefore, that they should have better vetting, that they should have better um, abilities to uh, somehow find out who these people are likely to be and bar them from entering the force. Because uh, we've heard from Sir Mark Rowley this morning, who says, you know, he can't guarantee that if you go to a police station, you won't be interviewed by a sex predator. Well, I'm sorry, that's not good enough, is it?
3: I mean, all over the world, you know, people hold the police in poor regard. They're often seen as corrupt and inefficient. You know, the British police have never, they've never had that sort of image. But if they're not careful, they could. I mean, I think a lot of women now are quite I mean, they don't have the same trust in the police that they, they once had, especially, you know, because these guys have things like handcuffs. I mean, you see that was absolutely integral to the murder of Sarah Everard in the case of this 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 David Carrick. I mean, apparently he used his handcuffs when he was raping his victims, allegedly, allegedly.
1: Yes, well, that's right. I mean, he has pleaded guilty to an awful lot of these offences and there's likely to be more uh, that comes out. But I'm reading in The Times this morning, for example, that the Metropolitan Police uh, over two decades had nine opportunities to stop what he was doing and somehow didn't do that.
3: I mean, that is such a failure. It's like everyone says, it's a pattern of behavior. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. People don't just all of a sudden start assaulting people. It often happens over a long period of time and can escalate, as was the case with Wayne Cousins. He'd just gotten away with so much that he became very, very, very brazen. And even when he was interviewed at his house, he was still denying it. He didn't didn't admit straight away what he'd done.
1: I mean, it it really is quite remarkable. And I fear that uh, there isn't going to be an end to this any time soon. You know, we've had more apologies from the police. We've had more kind of wringing of hands like we did over Wayne Cousins. But, you know, even they can't defend what's happened in terms of the way that they've allowed it to happen. And they can't promise that there won't be more of these characters. And there seems to be a real kind of glut of them because what we haven't seen yet, and I'm sure we will see, uh, are the sort of WhatsApp groups that he was in.
3: Yes, and if you remember, there was that horrific case recently of those two sisters who were murdered in a park and police officers were taking pictures of them and making really yeah. inappropriate comments. And you just think, what sort of mindset did these people have? That's absolutely terrifying. And yes, it, it may it may reveal that this guy has a pattern of that too. And I just the police are just they are damaging their credibility. They mm. need to be a lot more tough minded. But we just don't expect that of them anymore. We don't. I mean, I think even with the just stop oil protests, people kind of see them as weak and ineffectual. Wow.
1: Yeah. And I mean, an awful lot of women, and I don't know whether you're one of them, have said to me that they don't feel safe, really, necessarily even being in the company of police officers, particularly if it's a one to one situation or if they want to go and report some particular problem. They don't feel comfortable walking into a police station. And that can't be right, can it?
3: No, it cannot be right. But I can understand why women feel this way. I mean, with the what happened to Sarah Everard, I think that just destroyed trust in the police amongst many women because, I mean, the way that he manipulated her, and I think a lot of women said that they think that they would have gotten in the car as well. And so now what will happen is people will just show extra, extra, extra caution whenever they're in that situation.
1: Mm. No, absolutely right. I'll just read this before we take a short break, uh, Candice, from Paul. The rapist police officer in the Met comes as no surprise. To be honest, I'm a retired officer and keep in touch with other ex-cops and present-day staff. Standards of recruitment across the country are a reflection of what you get as a police service. The same applies to the standard of senior officers, many of whom are there because of their gender, sexuality, race, and yes, uh, even religion. And even their client. Climate change views, I kid you not, and nothing to do with ability. is a sad shambles. People like the rapist Carrick would never have got through vetting or been retained in my day. Never. How many more are there? Plenty. And why oh why is Mayor Khan getting off scot-free? Well, we'll come to Mayor Khan uh, in the next section as well. Uh, we're talking to Candice. Of course, Candice Holdsworth. Uh, we're going to get her view on Sadiq Khan and his um, accusation around him that he has been manipulating figures, manipulating public opinion for his own ends so that he can, in fact put more charges on motorists in London in the capital city and outside it as well Um, he denies it Uh, we'll get to the meat of that coming next right here on Talk TV See it, hear it, think it, Talk Radio and Talk TV Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Brian in Norfolk says um, any major organisation is a reflection of society, the police, the NHS the BBC, uh, MRS etc what sort of what MRS is will have in their midst all sorts of miscreants and offenders that's the horrible truth Well, Brian, I don't accept that, I'm afraid. Um, Yes, obviously, there are people in society who are bad. But if you are the police in this country, uh, you should have a specific method for weeding out troublemakers, uh, sexual perverts and criminals. Why? Because you are the police. It's that simple. If somebody manages to sweep through uh, the recruitment process because it wasn't very tight... But if you find out that that person, as the Metropolitan Police did, on nine separate occasions that this person has been involved in what can at least be described as sexual uh, abuse uh, and certainly criminal behaviour, and they do nothing about it nine times, I'm afraid that makes the police culpable. In any organisation, if you find people that have done something criminal, you don't usually last. But in the police force, you seem to last. You seem to exist. You seem to get... Sent somewhere else. You seem to get redeployed. And what's really chilling about this particular guy, Carrick, is that he was working for the same outfit that Wayne Cousins was working for armed police, protectors of the parliamentary estate, and also the diplomatic squad. So I don't buy the fact that, you know, oh, this is just a drop in the ocean and, you know, you shouldn't get too excited and there's always going to be bad people in every organisation. No, I'm not buying that. Thanks very much indeed for your thoughts. Candice Holdsworth is here with us. Candice, let's talk about Sadiq Khan, because it seems to me that Sir Mark Rowley um, is again sort of trying to make out that he's making things better and that in a few years time it will all be fine. Uh, I don't think that's good enough, but I wonder whether there should be other people being held responsible for this as well, because clearly something's gone very wrong uh, for the last two decades.
3: It has, and like you say, it's all within this one particular squad. I mean, is there just a very toxic, dysfunctional culture there? Yeah. And we need to address it. I mean, one could be an anom- anomaly, two looks like a pattern to me. Well, it and does. it clearly needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And speaking of Sadiq Khan, uh, you'll have seen that today uh, he has been accused by members of the London Assembly, I- i.e. the Conservative group, uh, of basically making false and dishonest statements to the London Assembly, manipulating the U.S. Les' consultation results by improperly excluding thousands of responses. Sadiq Khan denies it. He says it's untrue to say that he's manipulated anything. Um, But this is quite a serious allegation, isn't it?
3: It is. It's a very serious allegation. I mean, a lot of what Sadiq Khan does seems to me to not be very popular. I don't know anyone who thinks this is a good scheme. He's always straying off his brief to do random things like. What was he doing at one point? Exploring cannabis legalization. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a priority for anyone in London, particularly parents who are worried about their kids getting addicted to marijuana. And what was the other thing? Oh, always talking about Brexit yes. as well. Always, well, he wants always to rejoin. Well,
1: he said the other day, uh, last week in fact, that he wants to rejoin the European Union single market, and he thinks that London should have its own immigration policy. Well, great, okay. but uh, he wasn't actually elected to do any of those things.
3: No, absolutely not. We, we never hear from the mayors of other major cities what their opinions are on cannabis legalisation, Brexit. And he's also making London an absolute nightmare to driving. I mean, anyone who drives in London now, unless you're driving very late at night or very early in the morning, will say it is such a congested city now. It can take you... Two and a half hours
1: to drive across London. Yeah, it really can. And given that there's more train strikes being organised, I'm afraid driving is about the only option you've got left, haven't you? A load of people told me yesterday they couldn't get buses. There was some kind of problem with the buses. And, you know, London is now the most congested city on the planet, and that's official. So I really don't think that Sadiq Khan should be worried about anything else apart from that. And, of course, the terrible of gang violence that we saw at the weekend where a seven-year-old girl was amongst those shots in a drive-by shooting outside Euston station.
3: I mean, he is just the wrong person for the wrong time. I'm continually disappointed by the way he keeps getting elected as mayor. I really don't think he's done anything of value.
1: No, I really don't either. And hopefully he will find out that that's why he doesn't find himself having a third term uh, when he stands for it coming up uh, the next time around. Let's talk about teachers because I know you've got uh, children. Um, Teachers are voting to strike in February and March. They say, like every other. Uh, public sector union, um, that they need more money, that their conditions are unbearable. They've got such a tough job. It's awful. um, And they just need to be given uh, more reason to stay in the job. I mean, this is the new narrative, isn't it? That, uh, oh, we can't uh, retain teachers because the job is so awful. Well, I'm sorry, if you weren't clever enough to know what you were expected to do as a teacher, then you shouldn't really have joined up in the first place.
3: No. And I think as well, what happens with teaching, like with other professions, like maybe medicine, is people go in very idealistic and they think it's going to be one way and then they get in there and they realize it's very, very, very different. So I think that can sometimes be a problem of retention. But I don't think teaching is a particularly low paid profession. And when you look at the head teachers' union and the teaching assistants union, they actually voted not to strike um and also the threat they did technically reach the threshold for striking but there are a huge number of teachers who voted in this ballot who did not want to strike because i think that they know that kids have already missed out on enough schooling like now is not the time to be walking out kids need to catch up from all the the lessons that were missed during the lockdown and for me i have such huge mistrust of the teachers unions after that period because they really did not put kids first. I mean, they were constantly pushing for closures. Masks were onerous for young children having to sit the whole day in classrooms with masks. The head of the NET, Mary Boosted, is a, a very ideological person. I don't think she takes a common sense approach. At all?
1: No, not at all. I mean, it's very clear that the teaching unions couldn't care a stuff about their actual uh, charges that their pupils that they're supposed to be teaching. Um, and because they're always telling us, and I suggested this last night, because they're always telling us that they work so hard during the holidays, those 13 weeks that they get in far in excess of almost any other job in the public sector, uh, they're always saying, oh, but we work most of that because we're planning lessons and we're marking papers and we're doing research. Well, why don't they, if they are so busy during the holidays doing it, Why don't they strike during the holidays? They could strike for the whole of half term. They could strike for perhaps part of the summer term, part of the Easter term. And that way they wouldn't disrupt the classroom quite so much. And they'd be able to make their point because they wouldn't be able to do all that work that they say they do during the holidays.
3: Yes, I mean, I think they do do some of that, but I mean, every profession has planning outside of hours. I mean, who doesn't come home from work at the end of the day and have to do a lot of work? We're all very, very, very busy. I don't agree with this special mm. pleading. And the fact of the matter is these professions like nursery care, teaching, if they strike and if they walk out, it affects the productivity of the whole country. It really does. If I don't have childcare, I can't work. Mm. And that's a disaster. That really is a disaster that causes so many problems and a real knock-on effect. And I remember during the lockdown, because my kids were, my, I only had one child then, he was one. And I remember my friends with kids the same age were just like, how do they expect us to do a job when I've got a baby running around? Yeah, right. Absolutely impossible.
1: That's the thing. And of course, the other problem is now that in every single uh, one of these public sector jobs, the narrative that they're pushing on everyone is that it's unbearable that they can't possibly continue the way they're going, that they can't possibly do the job. And it seems to me that it's amazing, that not it, that they've all coordinated this same feeling at the same time uh, while there's a Tory government kind of, you know, swashing around uh, in the under decks of the ship, not really quite sure what it's doing.
3: Yes, I think so. And I think Molly Kingsley appears on your show. She goes in the Daily Mail today. She said that they have actually had a pay increase. I mean, more than they've had in about 15 years. So those claims don't totally wash. And if you see the, the head teachers' union, they haven't voted to strike either. So I don't think there's total consensus around this. That this it's such an unbearable job, and that the pay's constantly been eroded, and the conditions are terrible. I think maybe the one thing that I might agree with is that I do think discipline has broken down in schools, and I think that's what a lot of teachers get a shock with when they when they start teaching that they're not really able to use the methods that they need to use to keep kids well-behaved, under control. And if you look at like Catherine Burbelsing's school, I mean, she's seen as an absolute renegade for the things that she does. Oh, yeah. But then again, the whole teaching profession is, I think, I mean, I think it, it tends to be overrepresented by more left-wing liberal views.
1: Yes, I think that is sadly true and sadly the case. Candice, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Candice Holdsworth there, writer and commentator, giving her view on the teacher's strike. I think most parents would agree with her that it shouldn't be happening, uh, that teachers have got a pretty decent life and a pretty decent lifestyle. 13 weeks holiday, uh, regardless of whether they do some work during it, is a pretty good place to start, I would have thought, wouldn't you? We're going to talk some more about the police, which we've been talking about with Candice as well, in a moment. Most police staff, says this text, work from home. Lots of high-up police officers work from home for part of the week. They are an inefficient service. Most of the HR departments work from home. There is little face-to-face contact. How can you get the measure of someone over a Zoom call? Vetting is outsourced in many cases. Recruitment is not tight. Their people services are working from home. We will see more issues in the future, not less as more slip through the net well that may be true but it wasn't true 20 years ago uh, when this guy Carrick began his reign of terror and it was a reign of terror make no mistake George from Dartford says Wayne Cousins David Carrick might not be just a lack of respect for women might also be a lack of respect for their woke diversity obsessed bosses not justifying it of course but it may be a factor in their behavior well I don't think you can say that it may well be that the woke Um, ideology has ruined recruitment it may well be that it's ruined uh, the way the police operates but i doubt very much that it has in some way created sexual predators i just don't really see that Uh, coming next we're going to talk to nusra metab uh, former scotland yard superintendent we'll find out what she has to say about the recruitment process and what has gone wrong uh, for these last two decades in the metropolitan police Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're going to talk to Nusrat Redtab very shortly, Uh, former Scotland Yard police officer, of course. Uh, We'll be finding out from her. What on earth is going on inside Scotland Yard? We've been told that an awful lot of police work from home. Um, I've got this from Jake, who says, uh, I thought I heard some time ago on your show a caller saying that police recruitment had been outsourced and it was practically non-existent when it comes to vetting. Uh, Perhaps you could ask Nusrit about that. Well, we will do that. But let's have a look at Sir Mark Rowley, uh, who is, of course, the chief of the Metropolitan Police. This is his explanation as to what's been happening. This man abused women in the most disgusting manner. It is sickening. We have let women and girls down, and indeed we've let Londoners down. We have failed, and I'm sorry. He should not have been a police officer. I do know an apology doesn't go far enough, but I do think it's important to acknowledge our failings and for me to say, I'm sorry. I apologise to all of David Carrick's victims, and I also want to say sorry to all of the women across London who feel we've let them down. Sorry. I'm afraid sometimes sorry isn't really enough, particularly when it's sorry for another second time after the situation with Wayne Cousins, who actually murdered a woman after a cavalcade of ghastliness and a horrible reign of terror uh, in London. Let's talk to Nusrit Metab, a former Scotland Yard superintendent, um, and find out how this is still happening. Nazir, very good morning to you.
4: Good morning, Mike.
1: I mean, I know that uh, Carrick didn't kill anyone, but in some ways his uh, sexual sort of predatory behaviour is almost worse than Wayne Cousins. Unbelievable that they both worked in the same unit as well. I wonder what's going on there.
4: Absolutely horrific, you know, to face that. And I applaud all the women that came forward, the bravery of those women. And they were let down by a system Policing legitimacy is hanging by a thread. and But I still urge women out there that have suffered sexual abuse, domestic abuse, to please come forward. You have to have justice for victims. They can't come forward to the Met, which I totally understand.
1: We've just got a little... Should go um, to
4: another force or third-party reporting. How did this happen...
1: I think we're going to try and uh, get you on a better line, it, because there's a bit of a problem there uh, with what is going on. But uh, we will come back to you. Um, Graham in Bushy, maybe the London Mayor as London's Police yeah, and Crime Commissioner, should spend more time in dealing with rogue metropolitan yeah. police officers instead of fleecing London drivers uh, with his Ulez expansion plan. Um, I think we might have you back. Is that better?
4: I think so, Mike. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes, Gary. Sorry, carry on. Yes. Yeah. So I urge any woman out there that suffered from sexual abuse, domestic abuse, to come forward. If they don't trust the police, do third party reporting and this new um, hotline. The
1: problem, of course, for Sir Mark Rowley is that he's been interviewed uh, this morning and he's basically said that he cannot guarantee to any woman um, who goes to the police to report anything, whether it be a sexual crime or any other kind of crime, he can't guarantee that the person that she will speak to is not some kind of sexual predator.
4: Well, absolutely. And uh, isn't that sad? Well, it's They're, worse
1: than sad. It's it's unforgivable, isn't
4: it? There's over a thousand people that have, have got these allegations, police officers, but now needs to be the change. So leadership, culture and practices have to be... Yeah.
1: I mean, I said um, to somebody as well the other day... Um,
4: I think Mark... Mark
1: I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave it there, I think, Nazareth, because it's just, I'm, I'm only hearing partly what you're saying. Um, here's the situation, right? Some people are saying to me, it's not right to say that the police are rotten to the core. Stuart in Yeovil, uh, he says, there are 34,000 police officers in the Met. To imply that the Met as an organisation is corrupt and illegitimate is profoundly wrong and unbalanced. Well, I don't think it is actually, Stuart. Think about what you've said there. You think that to imply that the Met as an organisation is corrupt and illegitimate is profoundly wrong and unbalanced. Remember what happened with Wayne Cousins. Remember what the situation was when it was discovered that not only was Wayne Cousins' nickname The Rapist, but that several of his fellow officers knew what he was doing, used to joke about it regularly on WhatsApp groups, right? Now, you're not going to tell me that inside of the police organisation itself, people were unaware of all of that. We've all worked in offices where jokes are made, where stories are told, where people know precisely what some people are doing, particularly if it's nefarious, and if it's criminal, and even if it's not criminal, but it is questionable, and it shouldn't be happening in the police. Stuart goes on to say, I'm horrified by today's report and disgusted by his behaviour, but it is fundamentally wrong to very casually accuse all the Met as being in the same boat. How many people in the media have criminal records that they hide behind a bushel? Well, I can tell you this, Stuart. If there was anybody with a criminal record in an organisation such as this, if there was anyone with a criminal record uh, in any private company, they would be flushed out and they would be sacked. And I can't believe that you think that because large numbers of the police have not been done for sexual predatory behaviour, that they somehow must be in the clear. Because I don't understand, I'm about to ask Nusra, I think we've got her back, precisely how this culture can exist... Because, Nusrit, you've worked inside these organisations, right? You must know how it is possible for these men to continue to behave like this, despite the fact that an awful lot of other, of their colleagues know that they're doing it.
4: How does it, How does it? How, how is nothing done about it? Well, it's the culture of misogyny, Mike, and you've said it yourself. If we look at the nickname given to this individual, and I don't know if I can say it on air, but it meant that he was mean and cruel. Why didn't that get red flags? Yes. And a lot of people get away with it a lot of people misbehave in the workplace whether it's misogyny whether it's racism homophobia because they are good at their job they're a good egg they know what they're doing it's just banter and people around them actually um, allow them they enable and endorse them i call them the silent majority who knows what's going on they don't feel safe to um, actually come forward and say something because still I haven't heard anything said about safer spaces for whistleblowers. These people, whistleblowers need protection to give them courage to come forward. If you look at what happened at Charing Cross, people were being abused. There were WhatsApp groups and they were so afraid because of this concept of police family loyalty. And if you report us, you're not one of us. Mm. They get ostracized. They get bullied, harassed, harangued and forced out of a job. I'm a whistleblower, Mike. I, I uh, bought a number of complaints of what was going on in the system. And all that happened to me was I was vilified. I was, you know, made to feel an outsider and further harassed. Mm. The Met had to start by protecting people inside to give them the confidence to actually
1: report on a colleague. So what you're saying then is uh, anti what Stuart has been suggesting to me, um, that I'm wrong uh, to suggest that the Met as an organisation is corrupt and illegitimate. Because it sounds like it is. Because if that's the way it operates, I'm afraid it is corrupt and illegitimate because there's not enough good people stopping the bad people from behaving badly.
4: And and the thing is, um, at this moment, I wouldn't say that you're wrong. Mm. I would say you're absolutely right. Because the systems and processes are broken, Mike, and they have to be fixed to allow that silent majority to step forward, to allow. And leadership is a big part of it. Leaders knew about his nickname. Why didn't they have a red flag? Anybody in the Met that has a nickname, need that needs to be addressed immediately. Right. And you have to look at why. There's over, a you know, there's 800 officers with these allegations. They need to be vetted immediately. They need to be given a priority and they need to be shown the door. It's too, it's, we cannot go on or the Met cannot go on by saying, I think one of the things that Mark Rowley has said, I'll wait for the full report of Casey in, um, Baroness Casey's mm. report in March to take action. Why is an action being taken immediately now? Right, the minister already in measures we can't wait anymore well surely what they should be doing is looking
1: at the immediate superior officers of this guy Carrick uh, and quizzing them uh, every single day until they find out how it was possible for him to continue to operate how it was possible for him to have been um given uh, the opportunity nine times to be apprehended and stopped from what he was doing and yet he wasn't you know I would have those people in the office right now saying it's your fault you're supervising him why did you let it happen
4: Uh, accountability and that lack this lacking in the mess not the first time what actually needs to happen is i totally agree with you that it it, there needs to be accountability to gain that trust and confidence of women and other people out there it needs to start now we can't wait until march also the case review has identified this that officers that are investigating misconduct don't actually understand the difference between misconduct and gross misconduct but more importantly Mike when it comes to accusations of misogyny, they don't understand misogyny and they don't understand predatory behaviour, these are the people investigating so we need to take these people away, we need to put in people that know what they're doing and understand these very important issues because those women were subjected to some horrific acts you know, urinating over them looking them up in cupboards, next going into work and putting on that uniform of protect you know of being a protector Mm. and he was not only he was being protected by those people that he worked with the leadership and those people that received the allegations the system is broken yeah that's non-existent Mike and he
1: believed himself did he not to be untouchable so he must have had a pretty good sense of how the organization was going to protect somebody like him
4: yeah, well, he was untouchable for two decades. If you think that, you know, he had first allegation of domestic abuse, harassment, nothing was done. And you're letting victims down all the time. I still urge victims to come forward because we have to have justice for victims. But a lot of people listening to this, a lot of women and girls and men will be saying, well, I don't actually trust the police to come forward. I don't, you know, I don't trust the, the police to invite them into my home as i said vetting is non-existent so vetting recruitment leadership we need to look at leadership and start to hold those leaders to account because there will be a lot of people i mean just recently um i've heard in the news that an officer of high rank a, a chief inspector has taken his own life because he had was going to be charged with child images of child abuse mm. this any officer who's been suspended or waiting for 18 months has just committed suicide there's many many officers out there and no more talk they have to be rooted out victims have to be believed there has to be safe spaces inside the met for people to come forward vetting non existence there has to be independent oversight or vetting has to be removed from policing and certainly the met they are not uh, fit To deal with vetting they're not fit to deal with complaints of any complaint of sexual abuse racism homophobia or discrimination they've proven that over and over again there is a conflict have we managed to get out of this situation to regain confidence now action needs to be taken now not in March and I think Mr Rowley is trying his best but I think he's out of his depth Mm. Mike because um, the force is all is all special measures. He has to try to get out of that and then he's got everything else to deal with. This needs to now, I mean, Suella Braverman, well, she's made a statement to say how horrific this was. She can actually take and do something about this and start to call for a Royal Commission or statutory review. No more reviews, no more, oh, we'll just get Baroness Casey, as great as she is, to carry out another review and then, because there's already a mountain, a graveyard of recommendations that haven't been implemented. Mm. And that's the difference between a review um, you can carry out or having a statutory uh, inquiry that has three foot and uh, recommendations have to be implemented.
1: Yeah. Nisrit, thanks very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Met Metab, the former Scotland Yard superintendent, who says, basically, the police is not fit for purpose. She agrees with me that actually to say that it is corrupt and to say uh, that it is no longer uh, a trustworthy organisation uh, is entirely true. Because it's not about the fact that there's 34,000 police officers who are all fine, because we don't actually know that. We know that they're looking into at least 800 to 1200 police officers, individuals themselves, who have been involved in wrongdoing, who've been accused of wrongdoing, some of it criminal, some of it physical, some of it sexual. You know, This is a nightmare for the police and a nightmare for the people of London and the people of this country. The Metropolitan Police is supposed to be the gold standard of policing. Well, it's very far from that, isn't it? I want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls next. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV.
5: With Talk Talk, you can speed up and spend less on broadband in 2023. Out of contract on Superfast Fibre, double your speed and save on average £125 over 18 months by upgrading to Talk Talk Full Fibre 150. That's just £29.95 a month plus no setup fees. Search Talk Talk Full Fibre for deals that make sense sense. Talk Talk! CPI plus 3.7% annual
4: increase from April 2023, subject to
2: Plain talk, unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate,
0: the independent republic of Mike Graham.
2: Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's a beautiful Tuesday morning. The sky is blue but it is icy. Uh, there has been an accident down in Bridgewater in Somerset uh, where a double-decker bus uh, connecting to Inkley Point Power Station appears to have overturned. About 70 people on board uh, will keep you updated with all of that. Uh, there are some injuries but hopefully uh, none of them will be too serious. Coming up in this hour, we're going to be talking to the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Mel Stride will be here to talk to us about some new figures that have come out uh, surrounding Uh, job activity in this country employment uh, supposedly going up pay supposedly going up as well we'll find out from him uh, precisely whether this means that the economy might be on the comeback trail we shall see but meanwhile despite that uh, we'll be talking of course an awful lot about strike action because teachers yesterday voted to strike and they're going to paralyze uh, the education sector because they're going to make people have to stay home to look after their kids uh, almost half of the National Education Union members didn't vote to strike, but nevertheless, some schools will be affected worse than others. Let's talk now uh, to a man uh, who runs his school incredibly well, incredibly efficiently, and with a great deal of dedication. Uh, he is the sort of head teacher that you would want for your kids' school. He is Serge Caffai, uh, head teacher of the Sacred Heart School uh, in Southwark. Serge, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Now, you and I have spoken many times about the need for uh, education, the importance of education, and how it can really shift shape young people's lives you're a great believer in all sorts of inspiration for kids um teachers shouldn't be striking should they
6: no uh, i'm just trying not to be too emotional about this uh, give the kids a break for goodness sake um i suppose the only bright news is that uh, so few teachers and only one union have voted for action
1: yeah
6: uh, so let's take take a bit of heart from that uh, but for goodness sake, this government has already shown it doesn't care about our kids. We gave Williamson a knighthood for the absolute shambles of how kids were treated during the COVID idea um, process. Um, So they've shown they don't care. The unions, I've dealt with them for so many years. I'm sorry, pupils come pretty low down their priority list when it comes to dealing with schools. Uh, Maybe they always tell me, well, we're not here for anything other than our members. Um, So that's a given. So who are we left with? The teachers. Um, And you'll hear a lot today. I've already heard heard it on the news and on the radio, how much we care about the kids. Well, don't go on strike then. Mm. And I would plead with any member of of the union. Listen, the kids have had enough. Uh, It's wrong strategy anyway. We'll keep the parents on side. We'll show the kids that we really care for them by keeping them in school where they should be. Because I know, I've got two schools, you know, not great areas of London. If they're not in school, they're going to be up to nonsense or nothing. And uh, it's not too late. They've sent a message to the government. The government, listen, on every level, they've mucked up everything, the police, the nurses. But let's not take it out on the kids anymore. So if anyone's listening out there, just have a little think, whether you've voted or not because there'll be picket lines even those people that haven't voted for strikes you know i don't i mean i'm telling those teachers at picket lines the kids are going to see this next time you're telling the kid get back in school yeah. work hard and anything else we know what the kids are going to say you know we are role models whether we like it or not and um I just think it's it's a real shame. I could use stronger language, yes. but I know you're not allowed. No, I know. Probably.
1: Listen, I can see that you're uh, you're seething there, surgeon, and I don't blame you because you know for an awful lot of people as well. They've had a tough time of it. Uh, they might be working in in shift work. They might be working in part time jobs. They might be working in you know freelance type jobs where they only get paid if they turn up. If they mm-hmm. have to stay home to look after their kids, they're suffering as well. You know the economy's suffering. Everybody's suffering. Um, and for what exactly? They've been offered eight point nine percent new starting teachers. Well, it's been paid already. You know, it's been paid already. So we what's the problem? October, you know, and even
6: worse than that, in terms of a head teacher in case people don't know, can can only ask who's going out on strike. We can't be told in advance who exactly is going out on strike. So if we wanted to make sure the vulnerable look after year 11, make sure that kids who parents actually have got no choice but to go out and, to work, you know, and they will be at home on their own, you know, um, please tell us who is who's, who's going out on strike. Meet us halfway So that we can make a little bit of provision to look after the kids that can really be looked after. At the moment, I know a certain number of people are in the union, but I don't know who's going out on strike and who isn't in terms of trying to therefore plan for these four days. It just makes it a lot more difficult. And there's only one set of people or two sets of people that are going to suffer, the kids and, of course, their parents.
1: Yeah. Absolutely right. Serge, listen, I'm going to talk to you some more at length on this, I'm sure. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Serge Kefai, uh, head teacher at the Sacred Heart School in Southwark. Uh, After the news that came yesterday, uh, the ballot result was for a teacher's strike. Despite the fact, as Serge says, that they've already had an 8.9% pay rise, uh, apparently that wasn't good enough. But let's talk now to Mel Stride, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. There's some new figures coming out from the Office for National Statistics this morning on employment, uh, on the numbers of people who have been moved out of inactivity and into work. Um, Mel, a very good uh, morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good
2: morning.
1: Um, It seems an odd time to be talking about uh, unemployment and employment when there's so many strikes going on. Uh, Before we get to the figures today, um, teachers now striking, nurses striking, uh, railway workers now turning down a deal
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Uh, With the government, there doesn't
2: seem to be any end to this, does there? Well, there will be an end to it, and uh, clearly for the long-suffering public or for those who have children going to school or businesses who are now facing the prospect of some workers not going in because they've got to look after their children in the meantime because they're not at school, we really do need to see uh, an end to it. But the important point uh, here really is that we need to see pay restraint because of inflation. Inflation is coming down, but what we don't want to see is that uh, that fall being blunted or indeed in, uh, increased inflation as a consequence of uh, wage demands because if we get into that kind of territory then everybody is worse off mm. um and interest rates stay higher than they would otherwise do which affects people's mortgages business um business costs of borrowing and also the the cost of the government to service its own debt and therefore the money it may or may not have to invest in those public services that we all care so much about
1: sure you just heard from a head teacher there who was very very strident during uh, the covid lockdowns and he cares an awful lot about his school he runs two very good schools in southeast london uh, as he says not in great areas but he says that um, and he seems a fair-minded man serge cafe uh, that the government really should bear a lot of responsibility for some of these strikes and some of the things that are going on do you accept that the government has got some of this stuff wrong
2: well, no, no, I don't uh, overall, because I think the problems that the economy has, and that's where it all starts, have been largely visited upon us by, for example, the COVID crisis that we had some time ago. And you're talking about the employment market there that has had distinct impacts on, for example, economic inactivity, less people uh, working in the economy that could be. Uh, we've also had, got a war between Ukraine uh, and Russia, which has had a, a huge impact on the cost of energy, which in turn, has applied huge inflationary pressure across the UK economy. And those are the uh, issues that really we're grappling with here. So as I said uh, to your your last question, I I think the important thing now is that we have realism in these negotiations and the unions um, appreciate and understand that we are uh, all in this battle uh, against inflation, and that is going to mean restraint. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the government's not doing anything to relieve the pressure. So my department, uh, we have been literally uh, transferring billions of pounds worth of support, particularly to the less well-off. Uh, so last year there was a £600 payment to 8000000 million low-income uh, households, £150 for those who are disabled, um, support for additional support for pensioners and so on. And we'll be repeating uh, a lot of that support uh, from after April of this year. So we, we are doing our bit, but there's no getting away from the fact that unfortunately it's a against a very very difficult economic background but once we get through this we can see the light coming um, up on the the horizon I think there will be better times ahead but we're going to have to go through some tough tough months at the moment.
1: Tell us a bit about the figures today that you're seeing from the Office for National Statistics the trend suggests that uh, more people are coming out of inactivity uh, and getting Mm -hmm. jobs how is that happening?
2: So um, I I think the first point I would make is that the level of economic inactivity in the UK is broadly around the level that it is in other countries. So we're not in a worse position in that sense of the G7. We're about mid uh, pack. But what has happened that's a bit unique to the UK is that it increased quite dramatically during the during COVID as it did in other countries, but hasn't really come down to the same degree. That it has in other countries. So that's really the story here. But what we've encouragingly seen early signs of in these figures, and in fact, the last release, is a slight softening in the number uh, who are um, in, in economic uh, inactivity, particularly amongst the over 50s and some of the younger uh, uh, people in that cohort and some of those who have had health conditions. So some early positive signs, but I'm engaged now on a huge project, mission by the prime minister to come up with a, a really robust plan as to how, over the next year or so, we're going to start really pushing down on that level of economic inactivity because it's a huge economic prize if we can do
1: that. There are some who say if you moved up the tax threshold and I know that's not necessarily in your wheelhouse as it were but if you moved up the tax yeah. threshold at which people started to pay tax to 20,000 pounds um you would meet you would make it more uh, say encouraging for people to move out of inactivity um and actually get a job because they'd make more money that way. Is that something you would entertain?
2: Well, the the lower taxes are the better. There's no doubt about that. And we have a longer term aspiration to do that once we get through the present economic difficulties. But we have done a lot of of taking people uh, on on low incomes, for example, out of tax. The personal allowance, which is the amount you can earn without paying any tax at all, has now been raised to twelve and a half thousand. That used to be about half that figure uh, in 2010. Of course, we have put up the national living wage, which is going up this April by record amounts. We're doing a lot to try and make work more attractive in that sense as well, but also it's important we provide the support to people through our work uh, coaches in our job centers to really find out what their individual needs are, what their training needs are, what their health needs are, and then working with employers to get them into the jobs where we know there are lots of vacancies out there
1: i mean we hear there are loads of vacancies i mean you know the nhs apparently needs to hunt tens of thousands of people we've only got shortages of teachers there seems to be shortages in every public sector uh sort of arena uh, of of life i mean is there something wrong with the training is there something wrong with um the the reason why people don't want those jobs
2: well there is a there's certainly some element of skills mismatch across the economy and that's why the government's working so hard on the skills agenda which is not uh, the responsibility of my department that's the department uh, for education but we are working very closely with that department on the plans that I've just touched on uh, a moment ago to make sure that skills and reskilling um, and for example accelerated apprenticeships for those who are over 50 Um, are there and available so that we can get that skills match right. Part of the problem, though, has been that because the economy rapidly expanded after lockdown and the pandemic, there was a shift in the basic structure of the economy, the kind of things that people were therefore demanding and where the labour needed therefore to go. So to a degree, we're grappling with a problem that you can trace back to COVID. But the solution is this skills agenda that, uh, that I've been speaking about.
1: I've got a question, if you don't mind me asking from um, uh, somebody who's watching us now, Steve, he says, Mike, can you please ask Mr Stride why disabled people that are not on universal credit or any income other than a small occupational pension have had no help during COVID as universal credit claimants did? No substantial cost of living payment, £150 as opposed to £650. It's not an area I know much about. Um, can you explain?
2: Well, as, as I said earlier, there have been a series of payments that were made last year, um, and those included for, I think it was 8 million uh, low income uh, households, a payment of 600. That, in fact, is going up to 900 from April of this year, £150 to those who are disabled. And it sounds like it might include uh, your caller. And also, additional spot, like £300 along with the winter fuel payment to uh, pensioners on pension credit. So uh, a huge amount of uh, support has been put out there to, uh, to try and soften the, the kind of difficulties uh, that people have been facing. And what about the uh, the business of subsidising the economy,
1: if you like? Because as a Conservative, you must feel a bit uncomfortable just handing out public money to people, because at the end of the day, it's our money, it's not really your money. Um, wouldn't it be more sensible to make sure you could drive down the cost of electricity, the cost of energy, the costs of, of, of things that people are paying so much for that maybe could be reduced, rather than giving them subsidies to give to the uh, power companies?
2: Well, we have done just that, so the Energy Price Guarantee... Uh, which was in place uh, last year, and we've got a new version of it that will kick in uh, shortly, does exactly that. So it says that for the... the well, you managed count- to guarantee
1: that it's doubled in price.
2: Mm-hmm. That's the guarantee, right? Well, well, it, it, it's at a much lower level than it would be if, if the government had not intervened. I think that's the point. But I think as to your point about uh, whether it's a Conservative thing to do to intervene in this very dramatic way as we have, and also, of course, during COVID with the furlough scheme and bounce-back loans... Um, I think it is because I I think the absence of doing that would be pretty catastrophic. I mean, you would see people struggling to a degree that I mean, people are struggling already for the reasons I've given. But I think you'd see things very, very much worse. And uh, in in the case of Covid and the interventions there, I think you'd have seen not just a a rapid contraction in the economy that occurred, the most rapid since about 1700, incidentally, um, but but a complete meltdown of the UK economy had the then Chancellor, now Prime Minister, not intervened to the extent and at the speed that he did uh, on that occasion. And
1: as far as the economy goes, um, do you, you said there's going to be a tough period for a while. Um, is there a kind of government um, date that we can look forward to when things
2: will start to be a bit easier? Well, the Prime Minister has made a very clear pledge recently, which is to halve inflation uh, across this year. So I think that if we can meet that target, and he's a very transparent target, he's put his neck on the block, he said, this is what we are aiming to do, judge us by this. But if we can meet that target, then I think people will be feeling quite differently about their personal circumstances, about the future. I think businesses will be feeling more more confident because just as we know that very high inflation is one of the great evils as well. Lady Thatcher describes one of the great economic evils, perhaps the greatest economic evil. Um, If you can remove it or substantially reduce it, you do get all the benefits of, of that problem being eased or taken away. And so I think people will, by the end of this year, be feeling a bit better, but there'll always be more to do. Okay. Final question, Mel. I appreciate that there are outside influences and
1: things that you've said are mitigating factors and all of that. But a lot of people say to me on this show, Britain's broken, Nothing works. You know, you can't see a doctor. You can't get an operation. The waiting list for the NHS is horrendous. The police don't arrest the right people. Uh, the Border force are on strike. They don't stop people coming into the country. Our borders leak. Can you tell me, in your opinion, which government department is the most efficient
2: right now? Well, that, that, that's, that's a very, very, very good question. Very tempting, I have to say as well. <laughs> um, I'd like to say, I, I think the short answer has to be mine. Of course. Um, I, think I thought you might to- say that. Well, the reason why I would say that is, um, and, and of course, I, I don't know, I haven't assessed the efficiency of all the departments across government. But what I would say about DWP is it always amazes me how they seamlessly manage to provide all this support to pensioners, uh, to those on universal credit, get all those payments out regular as clockwork. Um, I, th- I think they just do phenomenal job and a very efficient job in that respect. And also, I'm very proud of what all our work coaches and what our job centers are doing up and down the country. I think these, these folks work extremely hard. They have a real sense of vocation in what they're doing. Uh, and as we've seen uh, early signs, but as we've seen from the latest figures, um, perhaps getting, getting some results.
1: Okay. Mel, thanks very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Mel Stride there, uh, the uh, Minister of State for the Department of Health, of, of uh, Pensions, uh, Work and Pensions, I should say, DWP. Uh, he says that's an efficient organisation. Do you agree? 0344 499 1000. Slightly later than advertised, we've got the delightful Laura Donsworth joining us next. She's got plenty to say. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk about it as well as to talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Mel Stride, uh, the head of the Department of Work and Pensions, thinks it's an efficient organisation. Some of you may have a view on that, and I'd love to hear it. 03444991000. But instead of that now, let us do something completely different. Laura Dodsworth is here. Very good uh, morning to you.
5: Good morning. Thank
1: you very much for joining us. Lots for us to talk about. Yeah. Free speech, Mm -hmm. gender recognition bills, Mm -hmm. constitutional law. Mm -hmm. Blimey. And uh, what is, what's the other one? Pronouns.
5: Pronoun badges at the Home Office. We've got to save time for pronoun we badges at Home Office. We must do. We office. will. We Absolutely. will. But
1: let's talk about free speech, because apparently in order to keep free speech alive, we need a czar in what? order to have somebody in charge of it.
5: I like this. I know these czars are often funny little roles and we're not sure if they do anything. But I really like this. And I think it's an incredibly important counterpoint to the, the censure. A free speech yeah. at universities so it's a chap called arif ahmed and he's a philosophy professor at mm. cambridge university now if you remember the author of the book trans helen joyce um gave a talk at cambridge university and there was this huge furore about it now he's the professor who organized the talk so he's going to be a good person to mm. step into this role um I think I think it's a very welcome change. We do really need a spotlight on free speech at universities because we're we're in these crazy days if you say that a trans woman is not exactly the same as a biological woman yeah. or if you suggest that all white people don't hold unutterable privilege you know you're likely to be pilloried yes. and if you're an academic you could be hounded out of your job yeah. and if you're going to speak at a university you might be no platformed so I think that the, the tolerance that we have for dissent to this form of ideology has reached such a stage where it's not only how the, opera, how the universities are operating, but the fact that the students themselves want to be cosseted. Mm. They want their funny little beliefs to be protected right. rather than be exposed to debate yes. and to free speech. And, presumably and if the students themselves
1: I hate to use the word groomed, but it seems like they must have been groomed into that way of thinking from school. Right, because we're talking about teachers striking at the moment. And one of my biggest problems with teachers in this country is that they're teaching the wrong stuff Mm. to kids. They're not teaching them to be strong-minded. They're not teaching them to be independent. They're teaching them to be sort of, you know, one-size-fits-all. You go into that little square hole there because that's where you should be. Mm. And you should think this.
5: Mm. Well for a multitude of reasons neither of my sons want to go to university but one thing one important reason is quite honestly this ideological drip feed in education Mm -hmm. and you know we've talked about Andrew Tate before now teachers are um, giving the kids lessons about how Andrew Tate is misogynist. Most of them haven't watched his videos. Right. He does say misogynist things. I'm not going to defend that. Right. But he also has positive messages for yeah. them. The reason he's taken off, the reason he's a hero, is that they don't have other positive masculine role mm. models that appeal to their their young version of masculinity. Right. I think they're they're in a vacuum where they're being told so often that their masculinity is toxic or that gender trumps sex that they feel frustrated. Yeah. And for some of them that actually turns them off um, a education but it's you know we see very extreme examples of how this has taken hold look at the re- the recent attempted assassination of Salman mm. Rushdie yeah there was the Batley teacher who was forced into hiding by Still in hiding as far as we know absolutely by um Islamist um extremists and you know the one place you would hope to be a bastion of free speech mm. is a university but it's the opposite so this free speech star Arif Ahmed has got his work cut out Mm. for him but it couldn't be more important but
1: what will he do though how will it work will he sort of issue dictums will he issue statements will he talk to government officials will he talk to university chancellors how will i don't quite understand how it'll work
5: i couldn't tell you mechanically you know you should get him on for an interview because i think that would be really to know how he's going to approach the role but he's going to have um, a remit to investigate universities that censor no platform and stifle free speech I mean, I would like to see, that. I would. I don't know if this is in his remit, but I would like to see an end to the term words of violence. Yeah. Because words are not violence. Mm. They're the opposite of violence. What they are is an alternative to violence. Yeah. They're a substitute. In fact, they're how we find agreement or how we come to peaceable disagreement. Yes. So we, we need such a big counter change, uh, such a big change yeah. to the culture. He does have a huge task, but having been so outspoken in favour of um, platforming Helen Joyce and mm. Um, Jordan Peterson, he should be the right person yeah. for the role.
1: Well, I was listening to a great interview yesterday with um, Brett Easton Ellis, the author of American Psycho, who, mm. who you might remember got an awful lot of flack for writing this very violent novel about life mm. in 80s New York, where this guy was a Wall Street kind of master of the universe, but in his spare time liked abusing women and killing homeless people. Yeah. Um, and he, had this, he was baffled because he was being interviewed on the Radio 4 Today programme by Justin Webb who said to him, you know, where do you stand on this whole freedom of speech and, you know, freedom to not offend people and all this. And he was, he just said, look, he said, I come from a place where you cannot offend people um, by saying anything. He said, I would not wish... He said, are you seriously saying that as an author I should be worried about what I write in case it offends somebody? He said, I don't write books for anybody else. I write them for myself. Mm. And if you don't like it, good. And he said, I actually, when we were his generation, Gen X, he called it, we like to be offended we want to be offended we want to be challenged and he would have yeah. nothing and the guy interviewing him the bbc guy couldn't he couldn't understand he, he was completely befuddled by mm. that answer because he couldn't understand why he would be happy offending people
5: well that's right that shows how far this is permeated yeah. so fiction writers now face a real challenge you know they get accused of appropriation mm. if they take the role of a different gender or god forbid race yes. in in their characters in mm. their books as though even imagination is verboten, we Mm. mustn't imagine ourselves to be anything else. It's the end of imagination, it's the end of tolerance. Because this kind of ideology isn't just about advancing ideas. You know, make no mistake, it's about absolute conformity and obedience to ideology. And in that sense, it's a form of totalitarianism. It is. There was a Civitas think, for a, uh, think tank report into free speech at universities. And that, I guess, that kind of foregrounds the appointment of Ar- Arif Ahmed. And it found that the decolonization movement is at seven out of ten universities. Mm. Now, there's no official neat definition of decolonization. but what it means is they're trying to rewrite curricula and reorder universities so that they're more inclusive but it, that's not as fuzzy and nice as it sounds mm. again it is about obedience and conformity to an ideology it's a very dangerous yeah. it's a very dangerous movement it's a, it's a dangerous time um Ahmed said that when he arranged the Helen Joyce talk, what particularly worried him was that some students, female students, came to and said they wouldn't be able to go to talk much as they wanted to because they feared being ostracised by their peers or being prejudiced against by their academic mm. tutors. Right. Now, how dangerous is that? If Terrible. you're at university and you feel you can't go to a talk by a, a journalist and author mm. about transgender ideology because you b- might be shut out, really, by your, by your friends yes. and by your tutors. Yes,
1: and some people believe they can't uh, uh, sort of illustrate or amplify their beliefs in things because of that same reason. And I thought about this after I listened to Brett Easton Ellis, and I thought, you know, there's very few examples of Western civilizations that prescribe how you should speak. And I could only think of mm. places like Iran, um, places like China, um, you know, Islamic republics, where you're not allowed to say anything horrible about Muhammad, And those are the only examples I can think of of where you're told what you can't say.
5: Oh, yeah. OK, right. Let's jump forward to this story about pronoun guidance in the Home Office, because I think you are absolutely right. We're joining the ranks of countries like Iran at the moment. That's where we're heading. That shows what this kind of quasi-religious thrust is Mm. behind the ideology. Now, it wasn't compelled speech. In the home office, they produced guidance, uh, which wasn't apparently for the whole office, but for a particular event. Nevertheless, they produced extremely prescriptive guidance about how people could talk. They didn't want the word homosexual used mm. because homosexual apparently sounds medical. They prefer gay. Right. So they're telling you to use one word, not the other word for two things that yeah. basically mean the same. Don't use the word mate. Mate. I guess because it sounds like a man, not a woman. Okay. I, I I have to say I'm a little baffled by this one. It's extremely yes. prescriptive. Oh, uh, this was a good one. They said, don't use the word transgenderism because it conveys the idea of an, ideo- of an ideology ah. that may be argued against. Well, okay. that's exactly what it well, is. Well, isn't that what it is? It's exactly what it <laughs> is. And it's exactly what this guidance is. It's reflective of a very totalitarian
1: yes. ideology. Not to be argued with.
5: Not to be argued with. And... The thing about compelled speech is it doesn't mean somebody holding a gun to your head. Mm. That's not what it is. This is as close to compelled speech as you get without a gun to your head. Mm. Because if you work in the Home Office and you receive this guidance, it's extremely difficult to be the one person who goes against it and starts wandering around saying, mate, homosexual and transgenderism all the time. And it makes you think about how you speak. It interferes with your natural um, speech. And it forces you to be obedient to ideas that you may not agree Uh. with.
1: Well, was there not a case... And I think people have told me this when they do sort of Google Docs and things in their workplace, that there are suggested alternative words that sometimes pop up if you're writing an email and you say something which might be considered by the wokists to be wrong, mm-hmm. like transgenderism. It sort of asks you that question, you know, would you like to change this word to whatever? It gives you a whole series of alternatives that oh. might be safer. I mean, what's what the that? What are these AI chatbot suggestions?
5: Yeah. I know they're just awful. Yeah. Are, I mean, aside from the Home Office, there are quite a lot of words which are sort of off limits now. Um it was the do you remember the Stanford University list that was published yes. and unpublished? You know, they said don't use, don't say blacklisting and whitelisting mm. when referring to email lists, because this is apparently racist. Well, when I when I talk about blacklisting with email lists, I'm in no way thinking about the colour of somebody's no. skin. It's nothing to do with race. No or um I can't remember. Barry the
1: hatchet was one you couldn't use, apparently. Uh, because that had some kind of connotation with uh, Native Americans. They used to use uh, they used to do the burying of the hatchet which showed that they were no longer at war with you or something. I
6: know. Well what's, what's
5: wrong with that? Uh, another one that made me really laugh was long time no see. Yeah. Okay because apparently this is mocking Chinese people. Now the thing is this is this is um, a phrase which has become common parlance mm. and I'd never really thought about Chinese people when I heard the expression. Now all I can think about is Chinese yeah. people when I hear the expression. So what it's actually done is put race to the front yeah. of my mind where Race was nowhere near the expression. Well, they
1: with Stanford, I think. No, it wasn't. It was USC, I think, University of Southern California, who don't want to use the word field anymore.
5: Field. Oh gosh, that's a favourite. As though, as though fields only began with slavery. Yeah. And there were no fields before slaves. No, I know. So you can't use the word field. I mean, it's just. It's batshit, I've it, got to say. It's it absolute is. It is, it's crazy. It's don't say it crazy. again.
1: Yeah. Try not to say it a third time. What if you that can help word? It. Is that yes. one not
5: allowed? On well air? not really,
1: not during the day.
5: It's as bad as field, isn't it? it is. It's as bad no. as very. Well yeah, a no, but that's
1: a, it's a taste and decency rather than a I you must
5: apologise. You that's know all right. my problem is I don't really follow lists of words. No, I know. <laughs> Oh, so while we're on the home office, can I just mention something else? You know, MI5. Yes, yes. MI5 is quite often on the Stonewall Workplace Equality Index. It's even come number one, and I I normally just sort of suffer this quietly and think about what it means that our secret services are so enthralled to this ideology. How are they killing
1: people if they're so worried about what to say to them?
5: I don't know if it's about killing people, Mike. Careful, you'll well, find yourself on an MI5 surely list. Surely,
1: people in MI5 kill people, don't they?
5: But the, the, I hope the, they do. I don't think they kill people. They're they? watching people. They're compiling files on people like you and me, probably, for well, not following correct They don't lists kill words. dangerous
1: spies and that kind of thing?
5: Maybe you're thinking... I don't know. Let's not, I'm not even debating that. No. I don't want to find myself on a list. But I'm already on this, a list. this whole thing reminds me of um, a great quote from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Do yes. you remember the character George Smiley? I do. He said that the secret services were the ultimate reflection of um, a nation's political health Mm. and a measure of its subconscious. And this really came to mind um, today when I read about the Home Office story because I thought this transgender ideology, this demand for obedience to ideology has now permeated every government department. And it permeated MI5 years ago. What does that say about our nation's political Mm. health? That's what I hope the free speech czar is a genuine sign of of the tide turning. Please let it be a yes. U-turn. I think we've seen the very first small U-turn. Um, the master of his college, I think it's... Um, I don't remember the name of posh Cambridge College. is Caius, is it? I
1: don't know. I don't know um, that
5: one. Well, she was very opposed to him holding the Helen Joyce talk. Right. Um, she boycotted it. She re- she said that Helen Joyce's words were offensive she has officially publicly congratulated him on his new role. Now that's great. That's the master of his mm. college. He's kind of worked against him in the past. Hopefully, if she is speaking out publicly, it's the beginning of a turn and we will see students' attitudes follow. It's it's gonna be a long walk. Well, back we, to we sense. should wish
1: him well and we'll try and get him on the show. Um you haven't spoken about Scotland yet. You haven't yeah, got a hell of a lot of time.
5: <gasps> haven't we? Because no. this is this is re- this is really important. We've we've got a very um we're at a very exciting time in British politics. The Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill has been hugely unpopular with um, very, you know, many groups mm. and individuals who argued and gave evidence against it. What the bill was trying to do was change the rules about how one might record one's sex. Yeah. And it would reduce the um, requirement for uh, medical evidence. It would reduce the waiting time. A lot of people think this is about making life easier for transgender people what you have to remember is this would allow anybody Mm. to change their sex anybody yeah it was a safeguarding nightmare and what's happened is parliament is invoking section 35 of the scotland act to block the bill i think this is the right thing i think so. i think what it shows is the scottish government has acted way outside of its competence ultra
1: vires we used to call that in law
5: And Really. And um, what I think it probably confirms is that Nicola Sturgeon was in fact trying to create a constitutional crisis to provoke confrontation as part of her ever, you know, ever ongoing push for devolution. I think actually what she's demonstrated is that devolution is a huge risk for the legal landscape of this country because you cannot have part of the country with completely crazy social laws that anybody may may choose any sex they want Mm. and the rest of the country that observes sensible gatekeeping towards protecting um, the Equalities Act and safeguarding men and girls. And I was
1: explaining this last night to somebody who was arguing on behalf of the Scottish kind of move. And I said, well, it really is a legal problem, this. It's not necessarily anything about what it is that they want to do. And in fact, some government ministers rather confusingly have actually said today that they're not against looking at what Scotland wants to do Uh, It's just that they can't have them do it when nobody else is doing it, and so it has become a constitutional sort of you know grey area. Even Shami Mm -hmm. Chakrabarti said that that she's not she's again not against what Scotland wants to do, although many people are, but she but it can't be done this way because it's all very well to say Scotland is um, within its rights to change its own laws, but only up to a point because it's not a separate country; it's part of the United Kingdom. So they still have to adhere to civil rights and human rights laws that apply. Globally, if you like,
5: everyone should be worried about this legislation. Yeah. One thing it would seek to ban is what they what they call conversion therapy, yeah. and that blanket umbrella term includes perfectly normal psychotherapy and talking therapies right. that young teen, you know, teenagers, children, mm. who if they are confused about their gender, and we know there's a huge crossover for girls, particularly who mm. might be autistic, have had sexual trauma, or who might be um, lesbian. That if they want to see a therapist and question their gender, instead they'll be affirmed in their gender. Yes. So it basically does away with talking therapies. On that grounds alone, it's dangerous. But the idea that anybody can say they're a different sex without medical gatekeeping mm. is a huge risk It really is for safeguarding. But also, this is not a culture war. This is about the rights of women and yes. girls to be safe.
1: Yes, and it's good to see the government doing the right thing. I agree mm. with you. But also, uh, the conversion therapy argument is all about the use of words, isn't it? Because it's not conversion therapy to advise somebody that something that they might want to do may not be wise that's not conversion therapy conversion therapy conjures up this kind of you know, screaming American you know, theatre where yeah. people are shouting at people who are gay and trying to make them straight, that's the image that they're trying to give you, so that that's just both so that you think that's bad, and I mean, it is bad but that's not what we're talking about
5: it's not. So it's very disingenuous. They're trying to mix up the idea of like crazy exorcisms and electric yeah. shock therapy on right. one end of the scale, which everybody would agree must never be forced on right. an individual that because of their mad. sexuality, yeah. with the idea that a 13-year-old who um, might have been sexually abused or is questioning their sexuality is instead unquestioningly affirmed mm. in the idea of being transgender rather than having the opportunity to explore through talking therapy what the background is and as we see more people detransitioning you know um, say a woman who thought they were a man and then changes their mind and decides they're a woman and they're left with scars mm. and the after effects of hormone therapy as we see more of these cases come through we should be really alert to how much teenagers and children need mm. talking therapy
1: I there's you there a lot to talk about
5: We've really blasted through gender done, haven't we in half I think an hour so,
1: and we've done well um, thank you, very nice to see you um, we've got some calls to take as well because lots of you want to talk to me so we'll do that, Laura Dodsworth, uh, always brilliant, uh, she'll be back next week of course and we will come back to you uh, with more of your calls we'll be talking uh, in the last hour of the show as well about a whole bunch of other stuff Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. not least the Sadiq Khan allegations which have come out this morning uh, about his uh, shall we say, readdressing uh, of some of the data that he got on ULEZ, this is Talk TV
2: The Independent Republic of My Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Terrible story uh, from the Metropolitan Police of yet another uh, dreadful case of a uh, pl- police officer uh, who has now pleaded guilty to various charges of sexual assault and rape. Uh, it would appear uh, that he tortured his victims. Somehow he was uh, recruited into the police force uh, some years ago, uh, nearly 20 years ago. And it turns out that actually um, PC David Carrick was a uh, very much of a bad apple. And this is yet more evidence, of course, that the Metropolitan Police is not fit for purpose. It doesn't seem to have any kind of vetting procedures whatsoever. This will be a huge story over the course of the day here uh, at Talk TV. We'll bring you more on it uh, as the case unravels. Ian Collins will be here at 1. Vanessa Feltz from 4 till 7. Of course, Jeremy Carl live at 7. Piers Morgan at 8. And then the talk at 9 o'clock. I'll be on that um, as well. Coming up in this hour, uh, we're going to be talking about dogs. Because uh, another terrible story that happened at the back end of last week which seems to have more or less disappeared from trace, uh, is the awful mauling and killing of a dog walker uh, in a place called Caterham in Surrey, not a million miles away from London, just on the outskirts of, uh, of the city where the M25 goes around. Uh, she was basically a professional dog walker, we believe. We're not sure whether she had a license for it because that's what you need if you want to do that sort of work. She was walking eight dogs, um, somehow lost control of them. One of them uh, was an 11 stone dog called a Leon Burger, um, which is called Shiva. Uh, We don't know whether that was the dog that did most of the damage, but the woman in question uh, suffered uh, as a result of her injuries uh, and died, right? Mauled to death uh, in front of uh, people who were also walking dogs in the area. We're going to talk now to Dr. Roger Mugford, animal psychologist, because the stories like this are fortunately pretty rare. But there is a problem in this country with dogs. There is a problem with some owners as well, uh, which I'm sure Roger will will attest to. Um, The problem with the Dangerous Dogs Act, it seems to me, is that when specific breeds are uh, noted down and given um, some kind of special status, it doesn't seem to stop these kinds of things from happening. So let's find out from Dr. Roger uh, what's really going on. Roger, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. I mean, this uh, was obviously a horrible case, and, and thankfully a very rare one. Um, but what did, we bro. what we've learned from the uh, the Caterham incident is that this particular place, and I'm sure there are others around Britain, uh, is a place where dog walkers, for what they for what they are, seem to go with large numbers of dogs. And I mean, I can't imagine anything more difficult than walking eight dogs at a time. No,
0: I mean anything more than two children, three dogs, uh, you're out of control as as a parent, as a dog walker um and the london parks have led the way years ago it was, it was objected to by the um, uh, vested interests uh, that limited the number of dogs that can be walked in a london park like Hyde park to three right. per person but be they owned or be they commercially walked by a dog walker and i think that's a really sensible number mm. and you know these dog walkers are charging it's a very important and beneficial service by the way to dogs and to dog owners um, But they're charging £20 an hour or thereabouts. Um, Well, you know, eight dogs, uh, what's the maths? You know, that's a lot of money, £160 an hour. Uh, They bundle them in a van, they're in a cage. Um, They poop as they're running wild um, or semi-wild. They're not being picked up after. They're not responsibly owned or managed. Um, And you really shouldn't trust your beloved uh, family pet to these dog walkers with Sorts of numbers, and, and as you rightly say, there are professional bodies which arrange for professional indemnity insurance and the like, which um, this lady may or may not have had. Um, but her, her case is very typical. Um, there's, it's a, it's a very good way of um, having a pleasant lifestyle and a lot of making a lot of money. Mm. And it needs to be regulated.
1: Well, exactly right. I mean, we were told in the sort of investigation of this particular story that a lot of the people who ask dog walkers to walk their dogs, or people who might have got a dog during lockdown um, and then realised that they had to go back to work in an office and so couldn't actually walk the dog during the day, um, which is a terrible situation in and of itself anyway. Um, but they're obviously people with more money than sense, it seems to me.
0: Yeah, and um, it, and programme like yours I, I always put common sense at the top of the list, really, and, and it's a, a great resource that is sadly lacking in the world of... Uh, all sorts of well and yeah well dog we no dog care yeah well and, we,
1: we make a living out of the lack of common sense around uh, in general because we're the only place that seems to have any it would have to be said roger and you've been on this show many times but one of the dogs involved and this is where it starts to get a bit tricky and i was going to ask for your expertise it's called a leon burger now i've, I've, I've got uh, people that i know down in sussex who have got one of these i don't know them well but i see them walking their dog it's a huge dog. It's 11 stone. Apparently this particular one's called Shiva it apparently used to take part uh, in a TV program years ago. And it was a sort of not a very well behaved puppy. Now, nobody's alleging that this is the one dog that did the damage. But but what's the kind of psychology of the dogs? Because the way that the attack is described, they're telling me that, you know, it was very silent. There was no barking going on. But for some reason, these dogs, at least four out of the eight, just started attacking the woman. I mean, what, what would be the situation? Two of the dogs with Dachshunds, for heaven's sake. I,
0: I was going to say, it, it just set aside any talk of breed or size. Leinburgers are, I, I know the breed very well, uh, they're usually very agreeable, very easily managed dogs. So just because of its size, though, of course, size can uh, inflict greater physical damage yeah. on the victim. Um, and as you rightly say, that's a pretty feisty in their own right and might well have been the, the brains behind this attack. I don't know. Yeah. It is without precedent. I've never known another situation uh, arise like this yeah. in, here or in America or, or reported on the Internet. And I've, I've searched the Internet for these. There are, by the way, something like 60, six zero mortal attacks on humans in the United States. Um, there are two to three in the UK. Mm. So there's very unusual
1: event Um, it really is I mean I have to say though I've noticed I would I would I would say this year um, and I don't know if it's a post-pandemic scenario When I take my dog to the beach in Sussex which I do pretty much every weekend um, it can be quite busy you know it seems like there's more people taking their dogs out there's more dogs generally speaking the dogs are fine but you see occasionally um, and it's usually the owner who you first notice who looks a bit difficult um occasionally people with their dogs on leads on a beach because the dog is not a very nice dog you know and yeah. some of them will even come up to me and say oh my dog's not very friendly and i'm thinking to myself well in that case why are you taking it to a place where there are lots of other dogs why don't you take it for a walk somewhere where
0: there are oh, lots of other dogs oh this dog i need space And um, look a lot of dogs like lots of imperfect people need help, need professional help but from the likes of me and yes we've never been busier and um, de- delivering this help, delivering knowledge and simple skills, and sometimes simple equipment that will correct these um, issues. So, not every dog is perfect. Not every dog owner relationship is perfect, of course, but they can be corrected. And that's been my 43-year um, epistle, if you like. Uh, that's what I've been doing, and my work is not yet done, apparently. Um, But as you said, something like 20% recruitment into dog-loving, dog-owning occurred during the the COVID lockdown, um, which many of us, social psychologists and and people who are interested in human happiness will say was a great thing, fantastic. Um, But um, naturally, there have been some pressures on some parts of uh, society uh, arising from these Great! This great increase in dog numbers, mm. but I'd, I'd rather that there be an increase in dog ownership than say heroin addiction or uh, exotic cars or, or long-distance uh, vacation holidays. Um, you know, it, it's. I didn't know the- there was
1: a multiple-choice answer.
0: It's a, it, well, it's a fairly. <laughs> positive sort of activity to engage in well it It, is normally it is it is
1: normally but what about let's talk about the dangerous dogs act because i'm a bit confused about the dangerous dogs act i'm not even sure whether there still is one but what i do know is that whenever we talk about it and whenever we say you know should we ban certain breeds people will say to me well you can't really because you no matter what dog you have any dog could be dangerous any dog could could do something which might uh, result in the injury of, of another human or another dog um, and there's no point in actually delineating particular breeds because particularly those kinds of dogs that that some people don't like um, if they're crossbred anyway it doesn't matter does it no
0: uh, mike i want you to go into politics seriously i want to elect you as uh, the, the governor of all the dogs <laughs> <laughs> dog laws uh, kenneth baker in 1991 introduced this insane act which if you imagine having a race-specific piece of legislation, you yeah. all screamed about it. Well, this is the equivalent, the canine equivalent of race-specific uh, legislation. You know, people with, I don't know, funny ears or people like me that, that are potentially obviously dangerous right. to uh, be banned. And uh, it's had nothing but, well, a lot of cartoonery, but a lot of suffering as well of people who own Staffordshire-type dogs mm. and... and uh, you know, it's all wrapped up in the fashion in the 1980s, 90s, uh, for dog fighting, which yeah. is thankfully in way, you know, fashions do change and come and go. But we still got this ridiculous legislation, which is cruel, heartless, and gives the police an opportunity to bash down doors and, and persecute perfectly ordinary innocent people mm. who have a dog that sort of looks a little bit the wrong way, a savage Bull Terrier that grew a little bit tall, or whatever it may be. Yeah. So um, we really need to get rid of that, but... Um, you know don't be afraid of dogs you meet in the park as you're walking a your dog today uh, viewers uh, you know they're very very likely to be responsibly owned and of a gentle temperament and let dogs play and be dogs. Yes,
1: and I and I totally agree with you. However, what do you do about those people? And I and I name the owners rather than the dogs themselves. But the owners who are irresponsible and do have yeah. uh, dogs that, that are not very friendly and are quite and could be quite dangerous and maybe sometimes are quite dangerous.
0: I've got
1: some visual aids here, some treats <laughs> <for> my dog. <laughs> have I, you got? Um, okay. Normally, you show us your dog. Where is, is he? There today.
0: Oh, Dave's here! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. have a look, I'll Dave.
1: Just Dave, in a moment. Dave oh, is Dave. a great dog. He's the <laughs> Korean. he's Korean, isn't he?
0: He's my little Korean. Come on, Dave! Dave, Dave. Come on, Dave!
1: Dave. Let's have a look at him. Uh, but Dave. the other
0: thing is, and I won't use this, but it's called a pet corrector. I've a certain uh, commercial vested interest in this product, but uh, it, it's a way of getting rid of the unwanted attention. Is that like the, sort of mace for dogs? It, it, without the without the smell. Yes. Yeah. Sound of. And yes, you can make it with your own teeth and you can, just like a goose or a snake,
1: right.
0: shh, frighten away other dogs. But um, I will introduce, because I know that all the viewers are mentioned Dave, Dave, come oh, in. we love to on. see Dave. He's a cute looking yeah, dog, yeah, very
1: unusual looking dog.
0: Well, Korean. He's, he's unusually behaved. He's a bit suspicious of human nature. But, um, you know, I've no doubt that no matter what the dog, they are capable of reverting to a wolf-like uh, condition. Yes. And, uh, so beware.
1: Yes. And would there be any treatment point, treatment. let me ask you one final question, would there be any point in bringing back the dog licence?
0: A little bit of me sort of agrees, but who's going to administer it? But a little bit of it believes that, yes, I think there is something in that. Um, but it needs to be sensitively
1: uh, operated. Yes.
0: Uh, as long as the income is spent on improving things for dogs, yeah, like uh, paying my salary, for instance.
1: <laughs> yes, well, as a vet, you mean? <laughs> yes yes no absolutely right well listen Roger as ever a delight to talk to you Uh, say hello to Dave for us and uh, we'll see you soon Dr Roger Mugford animal psychologist there on the uh, danger of way too many dogs being walked by one person it seems as though it's become a bit of a home grown industry in this country where people will guarantee to walk your dog but they'll be walking your dog with seven other dogs which doesn't sound right and for one particular woman uh, in Caterham last few days Um, it resulted in the loss of her life, for heaven's sake. I used to see them in New York. I used to see them walking seven or eight dogs at a time on a Manhattan street, which I thought was absolutely bonkers. Crazy. But yet, it still goes on here in the United Kingdom. We'll talk some more about that uh, coming next. We'll take some of your calls, of course, as well. Uh, And Mary Djejewski is also here in this hour. Uh, We're going to find out whether all these tanks that we're sending uh, to Ukraine are actually going to do any good. This is Talk TV.